And so Jesus in Luke 9 makes it clear to his disciples and his apprentices that the cross isn't just for him. Like he makes it abundantly clear to his followers that, that he is not the only one who is going to the cross. The cross is not just reserved for Jesus. The cross is reserved for anyone who is going to follow him. And instead of encouraging us and his followers then to just gratify all of our desires, instead he calls us to lay them down. Instead of giving permission to pursue our dreams and our passions and whatever we want, Jesus calls us to lay them down instead. Instead of telling us to follow the desires of our hearts and the desires of our flesh, he calls us to deny them and to follow him instead. Look, we've been in this series for three months. We've spent a lot of time looking at the life of Jesus. We've spent a lot of time looking at what it means to follow in the way of Jesus. Not to just take on the name Christian, but to follow in the way of Jesus looking at this invitation from him to be his apprentice. We've looked in great depth at what, at what that means, to abide, to practice Sabbath, to be in community, to be humble, to be driven by eternity, to love those who are suffering and vulnerable, to proclaim freedom for the captives. But what we see from Jesus in Luke 9 is that in order to do all that we have learned over the last three months, we must first deny ourselves, take up our cross daily and follow him. Hey, good to see you today. Great to be back together. Uh, we are continuing on in a teaching series called Jesus. Uh, it's the teaching series we have been in all year so far, uh, just over three months. It's uh, been the longest series I've ever taught in my entire life. So uh, we are coming to the end. This series concludes next Sunday on Easter. And uh, if you haven't been with us, basically what we're doing in this series is just learning what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And uh, uh, what we've been, been talking about, what we've been teaching is that to really be a follower of Jesus is to live into three big ideas. And number one, to be with Jesus. Number two, to become like Jesus. And number three, do you remember? Is to do what Jesus did, right? To do what Jesus did. So we have spent an extensive amount of time in those first two sections. We are now coming to the end of the third section of to do what Jesus did and uh, really looking at what that means. And so if you're taking notes today, I want to just remind you of a thought that I've shared for, for a number of weeks now, and it's this right here, that the end goal of apprenticeship to Jesus is to do what Jesus did. This is the end goal of apprenticeship to Jesus. Uh, I explained uh, more than once already, but you know, uh, when you think about the purpose of an apprentice and just about any field or, or career path, the purpose is to train, the purpose is to, is to develop, it's to learn, ultimately so that apprentice can do the kinds of things that, that people do in their field, and it's, it's no different for us as followers of Jesus, right? We want to grow and mature in the ways of Jesus and so that we can be the kind of people that Jesus was in the world today, amen? And so as we're looking at what it means to be a follower of Jesus, I want you to kind of catch this thought with me if you're taking notes. Like we really believe and teach that following Jesus uh, is a whole life endeavor. That following Jesus is a whole life endeavor. And what I, what I mean by that is, is not necessarily in terms of the timeline of your life, like from beginning to end or, or from now until you die, while there is some truth to that thinking, what we really believe and teach, and what I think the Bible teaches, is, is that following Jesus is a whole life endeavor in terms of like the entirety of our lives. 
like all of who we are and holding nothing back. Like, like we believe and teach that following Jesus is not just a hobby or a side project, right? That, that when you wake up in the morning, whether you are a pastor or a student or a doctor, whether you are a banker, you know, uh, whether you're an electrician, whatever it is that you do, that following Jesus is why you get out of bed. Like he is like the, like, like, like the thing that matters most. He is what drives our lives. But how many of y'all know that like, th- like there, there is a challenge with this. It's becoming increasingly difficult, uh, especially as we find ourselves in a very self-absorbed, self-focused, fast-paced digital age. Like it's, it's, it's even that much more difficult. In fact, one of the common questions amongst Christians uh, now is, is how do I follow Jesus in a moment like this? Like, like, you know, I want to, I'm convinced that I should in, in, in all of this, but it's becoming increasingly difficult. How can I follow Jesus in a time like this? How can I actually do what Jesus did? And so what I want to do this morning is I want to kind of take us back to the beginning. I want to take us back to uh, Palm Sunday. As we begin to look at this question and how to answer the question, how do we do what Jesus did, I want to take us back to that very first Palm Sunday the day that Jesus uh, entered into Jerusalem, that triumphal entry of, Jer- of Jesus into Jerusalem 2,000 years ago, when people laid down their cloaks, they uh, laid down palm branches and worshiped Jesus as the Messiah. Uh, they, they shouted at the top of their lungs again and again and again those famous words like Pastor Josh mentioned a minute ago, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So, so Palm Sunday is a big deal. Palm Sunday kicks off, it starts, you know, what has become the most sacred and celebrated week of the year for Christians all around the world. It kicks off Holy Week. This is the time of year where, where Christians around the world intentionally focus and remember when Jesus willingly laid down his life for the sins of the world. It's when we remember that death is swallowed up in victory because Jesus is alive, right? I mean, this is that time of year. This is an enormous week of the year for for Christians around the world. I hope you sense the momentum sort of building in us all as we we travel through the week and the days ahead, anticipating the resurrection of Jesus and celebrating that next week on Easter. And so so that first Palm Sunday, 2,000 years ago, of course, you know, like Jesus doesn't enter Jerusalem the way most people would have expected him to enter Jerusalem. The way most people would have expected the long-awaited and hoped-for Messiah to enter Jerusalem in his triumphal entry, right? Because Jesus doesn't ride into Jerusalem on a war horse with an entire army behind him ready to overthrow Rome. No, Jesus Jesus rides into the holy city on a donkey, right? He rides into the holy city on on, on a donkey, which is a symbol of peace, by the way, if you didn't know. Not a symbol of war. And so... I think, I think that for us to, to fully understand the implications of Palm Sunday, we have to understand the context in which Jesus rides into the city of Jerusalem on that day. We have to understand that the Jewish people had been oppressed for a very long time. They had, uh, for thousands of years, been, been oppressed. They'd experienced oppression and slavery under, you know, many different kingdoms and dynasties and, and uh empires, you know, who, who would treat them terribly, ruthlessly. And so when you hear about or you read about Jewish history, being conquered and being forced to live under the rule of a foreign kingdom, that's a major theme 
in their story. That's a major theme in their, in their history. And one of the examples of this comes in between the Old Testament and the New Testament. There's a period of about 400 years in between the Old and the New. If you, if you didn't know that, just, just a little piece of information. and It's called the intertestamental period. And in between the Old and the New Testament is, is a, an example of the Jewish people experiencing oppression. It's about 100 years before the birth of Jesus. And these people, these Jewish people, they are experiencing like violent oppression from uh, the Hasmonean dynasty. Uh, where they are being forced into pagan worship. Their temple has been defiled, and uh, circumcision has been outlawed. Now, if you know anything about the Jewish people, if you know anything about the Old, Test Old, Old Testament covenant that they have with God, like those are three pretty big things. You know, for them to be forced to worship other gods, like we know even the Ten Commandments, this covenant, they would worship only one God. The temple is, sits at the center of really their entire civilization. It's been defiled. It's no longer uh, holy and set apart for God and for worship and, and circumcision. Like, like we may think that's kind of silly, but like this is a big, big deal in, in their faith in terms of being a people who are set apart for God. And, and so they're, they're, they're living at a time where, where I mean, they, they are embarrassed. They're living in shame. Every day is a reminder of just the complete mockery of them and their God. And so what happens is eventually a man by the name of Judas Maccabeus uh, has enough. Like he, he's tired of it. And he, he essentially, he rises up and he leads what has become known as the Maccabean Rebellion. Uh, and the Jewish people miraculously regain their freedom as a result. I mean, this is, this is a miracle. Like, like all, against the odds, like they're completely outnumbered and they, they regain their freedom as a result of, of, of this rebellion against the Hasmoneans. And so this is just a piece of information why we kind of, why they celebrate uh, Hanukkah. You know, I maybe shared this with you before, but this is why they celebrate Hanukkah, because when uh, Judas Maccabeus takes the oil into the temple to cleanse it after it had been defiled by the Hasmoneans for many years, uh, he cleanses the temple with this oil. Well, the amount of oil that's left over after doing that was only enough uh, to, to light the candles for, for just a couple days, but miraculously, the candles stayed lit for eight days. It's, it's why they celebrate Hanukkah, the eight days. And so... So that's just a little piece of information for you. Uh, you know, I don't know if you're still, still with me today, but all you really need to know and remember from all of that is just that, that in this point in their history, the, the, the Jewish people are now free. They're free. They have been set free. They've been delivered from oppression from a Messiah type, Judas Maccabeus. They're, so they're living in freedom. But you and I both know that their freedom doesn't last all that long because, because eventually like the, the Romans are going to roll into town. Right? Not, 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 not long after, the, the, the Romans are going to roll into town. And this is, this is not long after this galvanizing moment in Israel's history where they regained their freedom. And so the Jews, the Jews are now living under oppression all over again under the Romans. And so you can imagine this level of, of hatred and disdain for, you know, that they must have had for oppression and for living like this, living under the rule of a foreign kingdom, especially after only having a brief reprieve from it, Right? And so, so at the time of Jesus, all of this just to tell you that at the time of Jesus, the main question being asked was who will deliver us this time? Like who will be the one who will rise up? Who will be the one who will finally have enough 
and do what it takes to overthrow the Romans. Who's gonna be the man, the one who will do this? And so you enter Jesus, stage left, you know, into the situation, and what you see is Jesus enters into this landscape of oppression that I just got him telling you about. He enters into this landscape of oppression, and he starts preaching about God's kingdom. He starts preaching about God breaking in and about his rule being established on earth in the here and now, and like people are amazed by Jesus, right? Because not only is he preaching about the good news of the kingdom, but he is doing the unthinkable. Like he's raising the dead. He's cleansing the leper. He's healing the sick. He's driving out demons. Like it's unbelievable. So not only is Jesus this like amazing rabbi and teacher that people are amazed by, but for most people, they really saw him also as this miracle worker. Like they didn't necessarily see Jesus as the Messiah, but they saw him as this miracle worker because he's, he's cleansing you know, the leper, he's healing the sick, he's driving out demons. And so their thinking was this, that if he could do that to these evil spirits, imagine what he could do to the Romans. Right? That's, that's what's going on. That's the context. That right there is the backdrop to the very first Palm Sunday 2,000 years ago. That's the backstory. That's the context in which Jesus rides into the holy city 2,000 years ago. And I want, you to, I want you to think about that. I want you to get that in your mind and begin to, to, to think about Jesus riding towards Jerusalem, riding into Jerusalem towards people who do not understand that here comes Jesus riding into the city not to save the Jewish people from the oppression of Rome, but to save them from the oppression of sin and darkness, the kingdom of darkness, and from death. Like, they, they don't get it. They don't understand. This right here is kind of a big deal for us to understand this morning. It's kind of, it's kind of a big deal. This is a lot of the reason for why the crowds end up turning on Jesus by the end of the week and, and demand that he be crucified. It's, it's a lot of the reason because, because by the end of the week, they start to realize that Jesus isn't the kind of Messiah that they thought he was going to be. He's missing all of their expectations. And the same people, like Pastor Josh mentioned during communion, who were worshiping him and praising him are now calling for his crucifixion, for him to be killed. And what the people didn't understand, if you're taking notes, is that Jesus rides towards Jerusalem not to overthrow Rome, but to lay down his life. But to lay down his life. You see, Jesus was keenly aware of his purpose. You read the Gospels and you see that Jesus almost starts to become obsessed with getting to Jerusalem. There comes a point in his ministry, in, 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 in his time with his disciples and with what he's doing, that he, like, he sets out towards Jerusalem. He, he just has to, get, has to get there. He has to finish what he came here to do. And that's really important to know and really important to understand because even though the people have turned on Jesus by the end of the week and they want him dead, they want him crucified, you have to understand, you have to really understand that like Jesus, he actually chose this path. Like even though they, they turn on him and, and they, they don't want him alive any longer and, and ultimately he's killed, you have to understand that Jesus chose this path. Nobody forced him into this. In fact, Jesus talks about this in, in John chapter 10, verse 18. He says this very clearly. He says, no one takes it from me. He's speaking about his life. No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. He says, I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again this command I received from my Father. And so what Jesus is saying here is that he's not being forced to die. No one made him give up his body on the cross and die. 
What Jesus is telling us in John chapter 10 is that he chose this path and that he is willingly laying down his life. It's really important. Mark 10 gives us a, another a similar example of this. Mark 10, 45, Jesus says, for even the son of man, talking about himself, did not come to be served like most kings would, but to serve and to then give his life as a ransom for many. This is Jesus, willingly giving his life away to rescue those who were lost to sin and darkness. Pretty big deal. And then I love what Peter says, the apostle Peter, how he writes about this in 1 Peter chapter two. He says, when they hurled insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might, we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. This is, this is beautiful language right here. And what Peter tells us is that Jesus stayed silent. He doesn't retaliate. He doesn't, he doesn't pull the God card in, in this moment to get out of the situation. No, 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 this isn't what happens. Jesus willingly lays down his life. It's, it's a massive part of, of Passion Week. It's a massive part of, of the Easter story that Jesus rides to Jerusalem to willingly give up his life for the sins of the world. He does not come to rescue his people from Rome. He comes to rescue them from sin and from death, from the kingdom of darkness. That's the best news you're gonna hear all day. So here's how this applies to our apprenticeship to Jesus, okay? Because that's what we're talking about. Like, how do we then do what Jesus did? You know? How do, how, do we, how do we really apprentice well under Jesus? Here's how this applies if you're taking notes. Jesus has willingly laid down his life, and he has asked us to do the same. This is what it means to be a follower of Jesus. This is what it means to be a, a disciple to be an apprentice, those words you can interchange mean the same thing. Uh, I, like, I like the term apprentice a little better. It gives us, gives us just, just different imagery of what it means to follow Jesus. We're apprenticing under him. But the way, the way this works, the way we begin to do what Jesus does is, look, he's willingly laid, laid down his life. And the way you do what he, what he has done is he, you, re, you respond to the ask that he's asked us to do that same thing. Not by force, not by strength, but to willingly lay down our lives for the sake of Jesus. This is, this is what it, it means. Look at, uh, with me, uh, the Gospel of Luke, chapter nine. Starting in verse 18, it says, once when Jesus was praying in private and his disciples were with him, he asked them, who do the crowds say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others that one of the prophets of long ago has come back to life. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? Peter answered, the Christ of God, or, or the Messiah. You could uh, say that there. 21, Jesus strictly warned them not to tell this to anyone. He doesn't want the word to get out yet, right? It's gonna cause pandemonium. People are gonna freak out. Verse 22, and he said, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders chief priests and teachers of the law, the Pharisees, and he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. He, he's foretelling of his, of his death, of why he came. Verse 23, then he said to them all, then he said to them all, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. 
Whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit his very self? So verse 22 and verse 23 are pretty significant in this passage of Scripture where Jesus tells his disciples about his own death, that the, that the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders, he must be killed on the third day and be raised to life. He's telling about his own path that he has chosen as the Messiah to save people from their sin. And then he turns to his followers and then he, he, he tells them, all, if anyone's gonna come after me, you're gonna have to do what, I, what I'm doing. You're gonna have to take up your cross and follow me. If you're taking notes this morning, I want you to look at this thought. To do what Jesus did is to deny yourself. To deny yourself. And so Jesus in Luke 9 makes it clear to his disciples and his apprentices that the cross isn't just for him. Like he makes it abundantly clear to his followers that, that he is not the only one who is going to the cross. The cross is not just reserved for Jesus. The cross is reserved for anyone who is going to follow him. And instead of encouraging us and his followers then to just gratify all of our desires, instead he calls us to lay them down. Instead of giving permission to pursue our dreams and our passions and whatever we want, Jesus calls us to lay them down instead. Instead of telling us to follow the desires of our hearts and the desires of our flesh, he calls us to deny them and to follow him instead. Look, we've been in this series for three months. We've spent a lot of time looking at the life of Jesus. We've spent a lot of time looking at what it means to follow in the way of Jesus. Not to just take on the name Christian, but to follow in the way of Jesus looking at this invitation from him to be his apprentice. We've looked in great depth at what, at what that means. To abide, to practice Sabbath, to be in community, to be humble, to be driven by eternity, to love those who are suffering and vulnerable, to proclaim freedom for the captives. But what we see from Jesus in Luke 9 is that in order to do all that we have learned over the last three months, we must first deny ourselves, take up our cross daily, and follow him. Like that's what has to happen. That's what comes first. So again, if you're taking notes, look at this. It's undeniable that at the center of following Jesus is the cross. It's undeniable. We can't get around the cross. We can't get around the cross. I once saw this, this uh, play uh, at, at a Easter time at a church, and uh, it was this family. It was like a dining room table. Uh, and they were just like doing the family thing and, and eating dinner together. And, and out of the table was like the largest cross you've ever seen. And, and the, the name of the play was like, can you ignore the cross? And you see them going around living life, this enormous cross right there. And, and all of them are just, just sort of ignoring like this thing that is like impossible to not see. It is undeniable that at the center of following Jesus is the cross. I want you to look at this picture of the cross. It's undeniable. This is at the center of following Jesus. Now, over 2,000 years later, post-Jesus and his crucifixion, we have, we have become numb and desensitized to the horror of this symbol, to the horror of the cross. But crucifixion has been around for hundreds of years before Jesus, and the Roman Empire decided to turn it into an art form. If you didn't know, it was like their specialty. They became really, really good at it. 
Historian Joel Green says this. He says, crucifixion was quintessentially a public affair. Naked and affixed to a stake, cross, or tree, the victim was subjected to, to savage ridicule by frequent passerbys, while the general populace was given a grim reminder of the fate of those who assert themselves against the authority of the state. Like this is what crucifixion really was. The ancient Near East, if you didn't know, was, a, was an honor-shame culture which can be a little difficult for you and I to get our minds around. We're probably understanding it a little bit more with social media, honor, shame, culture. But in this kind of a world, the most shameful way to die for them was by crucifixion. In fact, it was so shameful that it was illegal to crucify a Roman citizen no matter what their crime was. you You could not crucify a Roman citizen. Crucifixion was reserved not only for non Romans, It was reserved for the worst of the worst of the worst. So inhumane and barbaric, grotesque and embarrassing, completely shameful. All that to say that the cross in Jesus' day was not this beautiful piece of jewelry that many of us wear around our neck. It was not a piece of art like we see in so many church buildings. It was a symbol of death. It was a symbol of death. Again, if you're taking notes, the invitation of Jesus is that if you really want to live, you'll have to first die. If you really want to live, you'll have to first die. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, famous, well-known theologian uh, and and, uh, Lutheran pastor, uh, living during the time of, of World War II, wrote the book, The Cost of Discipleship, some of you might be familiar with. But Bonhoeffer said this, he said, when Christ calls a man, he bids him, come and die. Come and die. Now there's a lot of truth to this statement. For a lot of people throughout history, this has been a call to a literal death. I mean, Bonhoeffer is a great example of this. He was killed in Nazi Germany during World War II. Uh, I mean, you think about different examples of this today. You think of, of people being killed for their faith all over the world. People in China, people in North Korea, people in Iran, and many other places. Great examples This has been going on ever since Jesus and the 12. People being called to a literal death when it comes to following Jesus. I mean, James, one of the 12, was beheaded in Jerusalem. You may not know that. Matthew was killed by the sword in Ethiopia. Mark, uh, really interesting piece of information I didn't know uh, until I was looking at this this week, but Mark was dragged by horses through the streets of Alexandria to his death. Luke was hung in Greece. Thomas was speared to death in India. Peter was crucified upside down in Rome. Now, I tell you all that, and let me just, let me just clarify. Like, I hope and I pray that, that should the need ever arise, that you and I would be willing to suffer the same fate in our apprenticeship to Jesus. I, I sure hope. But thankfully for most of us, especially in a Western context, that's not a problem for us right now or anytime soon. So how do we understand this bid to come and die, as Bonhoeffer put it? How do we understand this? Especially in, 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 in what is right now a pretty safe environment, Western context, where, where there is freedom of, of, of faith, freedom of religion. How do we understand this, 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 this call from Bonhoeffer to come and die? Again, if you're taking notes, I think for most of us, the call to follow Jesus is not to a literal death, but to a metaphoric one. Not, for most of us, it's not to a literal death. 
Most of us, we will live our life and it will not be to a literal death for the cause of Christ. But for every single one of us, it is a call to a metaphoric death. The language Jesus uses in Luke 9 is to deny ourselves. And what this means is that, is that to become an apprentice, okay? To be with Jesus, to become like Jesus, and then to do all the stuff that he did is to say no to a thousand other desires. That's what it means. To say no to spending your time and your money however you want to spend it. To say no to a life of radical individualism where you give up your autonomy and your control and instead live in an accountable community with a group of people who are all trying to follow Jesus as well. That's what it means to follow Jesus. It's saying no to the self-expression of your sexual identity or desire, submitting that area of your life completely to Jesus. And so within a culture, I think that highly highly values self-fulfillment and self-expression and the unhindered pursuit of whatever makes you happy, listen to me, the way of Jesus requires us to relinquish our rights and our desires for personal autonomy and personal authority by taking up our very own cross. It's, 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 it's the call, it's the bid, it's, it's the call to come and lay it all down. Pastor who's been influential for me in recent years is a man named John Tyson. Tyson says this, he says, the greatest challenge to our discipleship is the centrality of ourself. The greatest challenge to our apprenticeship, to being with Jesus, becoming like Jesus, and then doing Jesus stuff, is the centrality of ourself. Self-fulfillment, self-expression, whatever makes you happy, the centrality of ourself, living for what we desire, and what we want most, it's the greatest challenge to our own discipleship. I think what Tyson is saying is that the greatest problem we face when it comes to following Jesus is ourselves. Have you ever just noticed that? Like we can talk about the evil, we can talk about the challenges in culture, we can talk about all of that, and all of that has some, some, some merit in terms of the conversation that makes it difficult. But, but I think all of us would be kidding ourselves if we, if we said that the greatest challenge to our discipleship and to becoming like Jesus isn't us. It's us. It's our own struggles. It's our own desire to kind of feed the flesh and to be led away and enticed by sin. The greatest challenge to our discipleship is the centrality of ourselves. And this is why the cross just matters so much. Not just the cross of Jesus, but my cross. That's why it matters so much. A crucified life, if you're taking notes, communicates three distinct things. Whatever, wherever, whenever. That's what a crucified life communicates. Whatever you say, I'll do it. Wherever you say to go, I'll go. Whatever you say, uh, whenever you say to go there or not go there, I'm yours, I'm 100% in. Whatever you want from me, my life is not my own. My life belongs to you. Now, let me, just, let me just acknowledge, okay, that most of us are not at this place. Most of us right now, like, this is not where we're at, at least not all the way. An example of this is uh, a Catholic military order uh, during the time of the Crusades known as the Knights Templar. Some of you might be familiar with them, really, really connected to the Crusades. And apparently when these knights were baptized, 
they would hold their sword in the air to not allow it to go underwater. Okay, so they're getting baptized. Uh, they're closely connected to the Catholic Church. Or they are part of the Catholic Church. They, they're, they're, they're going into battle. They're a military order. And when they would get baptized, they'd hold their sword above the water. It would not become submerged. It's an interesting picture of Jesus, you can have all of me except for this one part. It's a really interesting image, isn't it? Jesus, you can have my entire life except for this. That, that I'm, gonna, I'm gonna hold back. That I'm gonna leave out of the water. Could you imagine if we had baptisms like this today? Could you, could you imagine? Just hold up out of the water whatever it is that you don't wanna give over to Jesus. Like, just hold that up. Like, hey, we're gonna baptize you now. We're gonna baptize you into the faith, into the family of God. We're gonna baptize you uh, it, it, to symbolize your, your death and burial with your old life and you being raised to life in Christ. But hey, whatever you don't wanna give over to Jesus, just hold it up out of the water. Could you imagine if we did something like this today? Just hold up whatever it is that you don't wanna give to Jesus. Maybe it's schedules, uh, internet, Wi-Fi habits, phones, dreams, Career plans, identity, uh, shopping habits, whatever it is. So hold that up out of the water for a minute, right? We're just gonna we're just gonna baptize you. We all live this way. Just some of us are more honest than others. We all live this way. I live this way. We all have experience saying, God, you can have most of my life except for that part. So this is a way to live your life if you want to. It's just not the way of Jesus. It's just not the way of Jesus. And here's why, if you're taking notes, because the way of Jesus is built on the template of death, burial, and resurrection. The way of Jesus is built on this very template. Death, burial, and resurrection. This is not just a way for Jesus but a way for every single apprentice of Jesus. This is what Jesus did, and so this is what I do also. Following Jesus follows this template that I experience a death, a metaphoric death. My old life has been crucified with Christ. I am, I am dead, I am buried, and then I am raised to new life. This is what it means to follow Jesus. Paul writes about this in Galatians 2. You'll know the scripture immediately. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Listen, like this is the call to come and to die. Like I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The cross, you gotta understand, it's not about improving your life. The cross has never been about improving your life. It's about crucifying the old self and living from your new identity in Christ. I have been dead. I have been buried. I have been raised to life. I've been resurrected to new life in Christ. Do you know that this invitation for us to take up our cross this invitation from Jesus for us to, take, us to take up our cross is found in all four of the Gospels. Right, so, so the four Gospels are just, are just basically um, uh, 
stories about the life of Jesus. It, they, they all just are different accounts from different writers who had different firsthand perspectives on Jesus' life, and so they all write a little bit differently to different audiences. And so you'll see in like Matthew, Mark, and Luke a lot of similarity, like, like those are called the synoptic gospels because they, they, they carry a lot of the same stories, and John is just a little bit different. Like John, John doesn't, uh, it's entirely different purpose for why it was written, and, and a lot of the stories you read in Matthew, Mark, and Luke aren't found in John. But one of the stories, one of the examples that are in all four Gospels is this call from Jesus for us to take up our cross. And what I love, what I love in Luke's Gospel account is that he slides in that word daily. He slides in that word daily, to take up our cross and daily. The cross, which we remember later on this week, on Good Friday, what Jesus is telling us is that the cross isn't a one-time event, but it's a way of life. It's not just something that, that happened at one point in your life or in mine when we handed over control to King Jesus, when we surrendered ourselves to him. The cross isn't just a one-time event in your life or in mine. The cross is a way of life. It's an ongoing way of life. It is a daily death to all sorts of things, primarily to what the Apostle Paul calls the flesh. The flesh. In Galatians chapter five, Paul writes this and he says this, catch this, like, you know, lean into these, these words for a minute as we're trying to wind this down, but catch this, so good. Paul writes and says, so I say live by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit, and the spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other so that you do not do what you want. Verse 18, but if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. The acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery. Right? Just so you know, any of you all just caught up in debauchery, like it's in here. Idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. Now, I mean, Paul just leaves nothing out, right? Because what he's doing, he's saying like, hey, those of you who think you're all right, like, because you're not like, you know, you're not in a bunch of debauchery and drunkenness and orgies or whatever. Like, you're just like, okay, I'm doing fine. He's like, hey, hold on. Let, let, let me let you know, let me include you here. Let's talk about hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, all of that stuff. Envy. Let's just get it all in there so we all feel like we are included in what Paul is writing about. These are the fruit of the flesh. And he says, he says, I warn you as I did before that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. Some of the most famous words in the entire New Testament in verse 22, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. And then Paul writes this, he says, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. Have crucified it. We've laid it down. Because the way of Jesus is built on the template of death, burial, and resurrection. 
My old life has been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. John Mark Homer says this. He says, one of the key tasks of apprenticeship to Jesus is learning to crucify our flesh in order to experience resurrection life. The last three months, we've been talking about the abundant life that is found through this way, this way of Jesus, that Jesus calls us to, into a way that experiences life in the here and now in, in a way that's entirely different than the way average people, the normal people experience life on earth. It's an invitation into it. John 10, 10, or he calls it the abundant life or the life that is life, that you and I can experience life differently. We can have a different experience with life in the here and now than the way most people do. But a lot of people who call themselves Christians, a lot of people who are, who are you know, actual followers of Jesus are living their lives in a way where it doesn't feel to them like their flesh has really been all that crucified. And they're not really experiencing the resurrection life. So how do, how do I lay down my life, right? How do I lay down my life? How do I do what Jesus did? One of the most famous stories uh, this time of year is in Luke 22. It's in the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, one of the coolest places I have ever been in my life. Like, just, just telling you, like, unbelievable to be there and to understand that this story, like, took place right there. And it's the story where Jesus is with his disciples and he brings them into the garden to pray on the night he would be betrayed. He knows what is before him. He knows that he has come to Jerusalem for this purpose. And it says in verse 39 that Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives and his disciples followed him. On reaching the place, he said to them, pray that you will not fall into temptation. That's a whole nother sermon, but that's... He withdrew about a stone's throne uh, uh, beyond them, knelt down and prayed. In verse 42, Father, if you're willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. It says an angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. You see, Jesus, he had already laid down his life before he ever went to the cross. His decision to willingly lay it down came long before he ever got nailed to the cross. And what Luke 22 shows us is that Jesus, on the night he would be betrayed, is filled with all sorts of anguish. He, he certainly would like for there to be another option if it's possible. Can you blame the guy? Hey, you know, he's, he's praying to his father, hey, if you have another ace up your sleeve, if you got something else we could do, now's the time. Now's the time to do it. But what you see about Jesus is, is that he's already laid his life down because he says, he says, yet not my will, but, but yours be done. Not my will, yours be done. And so how do I, how do I lay down my life? How do, I, how do I begin to live a life that does the kinds of things that Jesus did? I pray prayers like Jesus prayed. When I live my life and, I, and I'm going through all the different challenges of life, things pop up, things I didn't plan on going through. 
I've got to get myself to a place where I can pray prayers like Jesus prayed. God, if there's another way, if you could deliver me from this, if you could, if you, if you could heal me, if you could deliver me from this diagnosis, if you could snap your fingers and make a way financially, if you could fix this marriage, if you could do something overnight, I'd sure appreciate it. If you could do a mighty deep work in my children, God, I would appreciate it. But Jesus, he lives this, this life, this crucified life, and he invites us to pray the prayers he prayed, yet not my will, not my will. Yours be done. And I just lay my life down, however you wanna use it, however you wanna spend it, wherever, whenever, however you want it to be used. You see, the way of Jesus is the way of the cross. It's the way of the cross. There's this uh, song. I've told you kind of the backstory, I think, at, at some point in the past, but there's this, this, this old, old song. Um, comes from a story that took place in uh, 19th century in Assam, India. And it was there that a Hindu family had a radical conversion to Christianity. This would have been considered a capital offense. And if you were someone who converted from Hinduism to Christianity in the 19th century in India, you would be brought out in front of the entire village and you would be publicly executed. And so as the story goes, and you can read about it, as the story goes, they, the people in the village, they brought out the husband of this family who had just converted to Christianity. His name was Naksang. They brought him out before everybody and the village chief told him to renounce his faith in Jesus right now or he would be killed. The story goes that, that Noxang responds by saying these famous words, I have decided to follow Jesus, no turning back. His children were immediately executed upon those words coming out of his mouth. They began threatening to kill his wife, to which Noxang replied, though none go with me, still I will follow. Still I will follow. No turning back. They took his wife and they executed her and he said with tears running down his face, no turning back. No turning back. And when they were prepared, preparing the process of executing him, Noxang said clearly with his final words, the world behind me, the cross before me. The world behind me, the cross before me, no turning back, no turning back. And this story takes the whole following thing to another level, don't you think? There is a cost that comes with following Jesus. There is a commitment that comes with following Jesus. And it's, it's everything, it's everything. I hate to be the bearer of great news, but it's everything, it's everything. And watch as you begin to experience life in ways you never thought possible. Would you stand with us here this morning? I have decided to follow Jesus, no turning back. Though none go with me, still I will follow. 
no turning back. The world behind me, the cross before me, no turning back. If you're here today, bow your heads with me for a moment. You're here today. And you would just say, Pastor Jordan, like, like I, I have some things to lay down. I have some things that I have been carrying for far too long. And today is the day that I need to willingly lay some things down at the foot of the cross so that I can experience freedom, so I can experience the crucified life. Can I just, every head bowed, there's nobody watching except for me uh, and God and everybody on camera. But if you're here today and you would just say, Pastor Jordan, that's me, could I just see your hand? I wanna I want just pray for you. I wanna just pray for you today. There's some things, there's some stuff. I gotta lay it down. I, gotta, I, I need to willingly lay this down. There's hands all over the place. You're in good company. You're in good company today. Father, I thank you for the power of your Holy Spirit. I thank you that you can step into very difficult, very natural situations where we feel overwhelmed, we feel like, like the odds are stacked against us and that you can bring victory in the here and now. And so Lord, I pray for everything right now under the sound of my voice that has not been laid down and we just let it go. We just release this to you, Jesus. In, in Jesus' name, may you have it all. May you take it all. I pray courage into this room for, for my brothers and my sisters to lay things down that they've struggled to lay down all these years. Lord, I ask for freedom to fill this room in Jesus' name. You tell us that, that where uh, the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. That he who the Son has set free is free and so I ask for that freedom to just step into the room right now to remove things out of our lives that we are willingly laying down at your feet, oh God. I pray a new life, a new experience with life, oh God, to experience life to the full, abundant life in Jesus' name. And every lie, every obstacle, everything that the enemy is wanting to throw at your kids, Lord, we just, we just bind all of that up. We just, we just address all of that right now and we send it to the foot of the cross where the blood of Jesus, man, was sufficient to cover that, to pay for that, and to set people free from sin and from death. In Jesus' name.